1: Hello and welcome to the show. Michael Ignatieff is a modern-day Renaissance man. An academic historian, broadcaster, Booker Prize-nominated novelist, screenwriter, and last but not least, the former leader of Canada's Liberal Party, he might have the most impressively diverse CV of any leading public intellectual... His new book, On Consolation, Finding Solace in Dark Times, does what it says on the tin and is essential reading for everyone trying to navigate a path through the endless crises of the present. He joined Hannah McInnes to tell us more.
0: Perhaps you could start by telling us, uh, as you do as you begin the book, how and why this particular book came to be. And it's sort of two layers. I know it had its origins in an unusual invitation, as you mentioned, but also I'm sure on many people's minds is the question of consolation over the past few years. You know, there's been, as you say, a veritable explosion of attempts to provide consolation over the pandemic. So I wonder, was that the main incentive for the book really?
2: Yeah, and I, it, it started because I had this extraordinary invitation to give a lecture in the middle of a choral festival that was going to put all the psalms uh, to the settings. Four choirs were going to sing all 150 psalms. And for some crazy reason, this was in Holland, they wanted me to give a lecture kind of in the intermission about justice. So I came to give this lecture in Utrecht in Holland. And I can't even remember what the lecture was about anymore because the effect of sitting there for a weekend listening to all 150 psalms sung by some of the greatest choirs in the world was overwhelming. It was deeply, deeply moving. Uh, I'm not a religious person. Now. I don't I mean, I have a quarrel with the Almighty and the Almighty may have a quarrel with me, but, you know, I have a problem. But I found myself asking this is where the project started why is religious language consoling to those who don't believe in God? And I, that led me to think a lot about the Psalms, because the Psalms are among the f- most famous works of consolation in, in the European tradition. And uh, I concluded, just to give you the punchline, that the thing about the Psalms is so remarkable is that they know what you need consolation for. They know what it's to be lonely. They know it's to be frightened. They know it's to be in despair. They know what's to be contorted with fear. And, and that creates a deep connection across time. When you read them in a lonely hotel room late at night, you feel you're with someone who understands what you're going through. And that in itself is consoling. So that's where it started. Just trying to understand why the Psalms has this extraordinary effect across time. And then we all were thrown into COVID in, in the in 2020. And what was remarkable to me was this explosion of attempts to seek consolation, particularly in the online world. I mean, my wife and I love classical music. So kind of every night, some you know, orchestra that couldn't play at a hall had figured out some clever way in which they could play together using earphones and this and that so that they could communicate. Some of the consoling uh, music, that music is incredibly consoling and and they understood that and they wanted to convey that to the public. So there was that and then there were poets and then there were artists and there were all kinds of stuff going on. And then we, um, I think everybody here will remember those moments when we put on our masks and went outside and clapped for the um, wonderful people who've been saving lives and looking after people in our hospitals and those are rituals of consolation. They were rituals of comfort. We wanted to express our solidarity with those who are protecting the lives of those we love. And that's a ritual of consolation that I think was very, very important. So I think we've learned, even in a secular age, just how important consolation turns out to be for all of us.
0: You mentioned the Psalms. Do you think it's a, a, a permissible, I suppose is the word? And I know this is something that you grapple with throughout the book for non-believers, you mentioned you're a non-believer, and generally for people who don't have a faith, do they have the right to be consoled by religious texts?
2: It's a very good question, Hannah, and I'm not 100% sure of my answer. There is something um, possibly a little illicit about um, a non-believer's appropriation of religious texts. But I also think if you then flip the question on its head, You know, do I have to pass some kind of credential test uh, in order to read these books? I don't think so. I mean, um, these books have been part of the Western tradition for 2,000 years, and it seems nuts to me that we should allow our doctrinal difficulties about God to get in the way of using this wisdom. I mean, one of the chapters in the book is about St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, uh, which is one of the most you know deeply moving to to tears moving description of what love is and I think you know my interpretation of that in fact is that this is paul reflecting on the love of God in the only way you can reflect on the love of God which is to reflect on human love mm-hmm. because that's as close as any of us are ever going to get to the love of God frankly mm-hmm. and his description of of human love is is one of those most deeply, consoling passages in the whole Western tradition so you know do I have the right to use it I'm not sure I have the right to use it but it seems crazy not to be able to use this stuff because it's so wonderful it's so touching and so it's so it teaches us so much
0: it teaches us so much and um, I think there's a good place to mention the other person who features quite heavily and that's the scriptures of Job of course and you say we must begin any history of the idea of consolation here because it describes the human situation so clearly. I wonder if you could elaborate on that and on what the story of Job, which is well known to most people and is a bit uncomfortable to many people what that teaches about consolation.
2: Yeah, Hannah, the Job, Job is one of the most awful stories in, in the Bible. I mean, it's just, it's awful to read. This is a believer, a devout man, a uh, prosperous family, you know, barns full of cattle and stuff. And God decides out of his malignant choice to inflict torments and tortures on a believer to test his faith. And I just think this image of God, the torturer, is just insupportable. And um, so it's one of the most puzzling and difficult books in, in the Bible. But the piece of it that always moves me when I read it is somewhere in the book, Job is reduced to rags. God has given him the plague. <laughs> He's destitute. His wife has said, you know, why don't you just give up? And he won't give up. He, he stands against the sky, raises his fist and says to God, what the hell are you doing to me? I don't deserve this. Explain yourself to me. Give me some meaning for this, is this pointless suffering you're inflicting on me. And that, it seems to me, is one of the key moments in the Western tradition, a, a destitute, a desperate human being demanding meaning of God. God doesn't provide very much meaning, but God, fascinatingly, speaks to the human being, Job, and says, look, I'm too big, you're too small, I'm too smart, you're too dumb. You're never going to understand what I've done to you. Uh, you have to obey. Job is not happy with that answer, but Job does not give up his search for meaning. So the point of spending so much time with Job is that consolation is a search for for the meaning of suffering. To the degree that Job is consoled at all, it is consoled by his search for meaning. There must be some meaning for what is happening to me. Uh, And what God seems to understand is that a believer who has been tortured by God and still wants to know the meaning has enough faith that there could be meaning. It means he has some faith in God. So it's this relationship between consolation and meaning that comes out so clearly uh, in the Job parable. But oh, it's a terrible story.
0: <laughs> so far, we've only talked about religious doctrine and you move on to talk about it a lot more than that. But I want to just ask whether you felt in your studying of all these texts that it is eventually or essentially easier to be consoled with a religious faith a religious faith that gives life that meaning that, that you talk
2: of? I think it must be. I don't have faith myself, so it, I can only imagine what it is to have that deep sense of granite under your feet. But one of the things I learned as I as I thought about St. Paul and I read the Psalms is that doubt is built into these texts. Job is a man tormented by God, and so he has deep doubts about his faith, Saint Paul, who really creates the Christian faith, is assailed by doubt, depression. Um, he's not just persecuted; he's also inwardly tormented by the struggle to retain faith that, you know, the second coming is nigh and that, you know, the Messiah will return and we'll all be saved. He has a tremendous struggle to believe that. And so, I think what I learned from doing the book is that faith is not the alternative to doubt doubt travels all the way along the road with faith uh, question you know to be a person of faith is not to live without doubt but to live with the struggle to believe all your life and and i hope uh, ultimately faith is consoling but i i think unbelievers like me have a kind of fantasy about what it is to have faith which is i think unrealistic i think you Faith is a struggle, Uh, just as we all have a struggle giving meaning to life. We all have a struggle understanding what the point of suffering and loss and failure are. We all have the point of of understanding how it can possibly be that an innocent child is taken from us, for example. Um, That is a test for those with faith, and it is a test for those without faith. So I I feel much closer to those with faith because we're all in the same boat trying to understand what it is to be a human being and what it is to be alive.
0: That is the key, it feels to me, throughout the whole book, this sense of being in the same boat of shared experiences where the most consolation comes from. And it comes up again and again, the idea of knowing that these same feelings of doubt and of struggle have happened throughout history to emperors, to All sorts of people. As Cicero is in there, you say, you know, he was writing to a friend, this is 46 BC, but he says, consolation comes by recalling to mind what has befallen others to induce the reflection that what has happened to ourselves is nothing new. It feels to me that that's one of the central messages of the book.
2: Oh, no no question. I I think one of the experiences that I've had, and I, I hope the people watching this have had, is When you fail, when you lose, when you grieve, you have a tremendous sense of solitude. You know, in the extremes you can feel no one's ever felt this before. No one has ever been as desperate as I am. So solitude goes with desolation. Solitude goes with desperation. And and I think part of what the book is trying to say, (laughs) we're never alone with this. You know, someone has been through this before. In the case of Cicero, you know Cicero, this supremely confident, you know Roman orator who creates so much of our rhetorical tradition, uh, so much of our Republican, democratic tradition, loses his daughter, and then this guy who's so supremely confident, master of Latin, master of fine words, suddenly finds himself unable to deal with the loss of his daughter. He just falls apart. And his friends keep saying to him, come on, Cicero, basically shape up. You know, you're Cicero. What's the matter with you? Pull yourself together. He just can't do it. And that is deeply interesting to me. I'm much more interested and much more sympathetic to that Cicero than I am to the famous Cicero we know so much more about, the scourge of tyrants, the enemy of Caesar, the upholder of the Roman Republic. That Caesar is less interesting to me than the Caesar who is clinging on to life by his fingernails, in grief at the loss of his daughter.
0: You say the same in the next chapter when you um, write of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. And what endures, rather than this stoicism from these writings, is the doubt and and probably centrally the vulnerability. That's what we take from them, seeing these people all sort of sensing the same fears and the same worries.
2: Yes, I, I, you know. <laughs> The Meditations has been read for, you know, 2,000 years. And if you go to Amazon, you'll see that Marcus Aurelius is the best-selling philosophy book in the world forever, basically. Um, and, and people read him because it's a great compendium of, of Stoic wisdom. What people don't notice is that is where it was written, somewhere on the original oldest manuscript. He wrote the words Carnuntum, well, Carnuntum, I'm in Vienna, happens to be about 40 kilometers away. In AD 165, it was the headquarters of the Roman army that was fighting a guerrilla warfare against the barbarian tribes. So Marcus Aurelius is writing the meditations in the middle of a bloody counterinsurgency war against the barbarians. It is a savage battle. He discusses at one point seeing headless bodies and corpses. And and so he's in the middle of a horrible war. And we need to remember that Marcus Aurelius is not a warrior emperor. He's a kind of, you know, thoughtful, stoic philosopher. He really ought to be, you know, somewhere above the Bay of Naples in a nice villa thinking deep thoughts. Instead, he's fighting this brutal war uh, over 10, 15 years. And uh, I think that colors gives you the frame in which the entire meditations is written. Instead of reading it as this kind of lofty, you know, noble, controlled exposition of Stoic philosophy, this is a story of an emperor writing to himself in Greek alone late at night in the middle of a horrible counterinsurgency war, wondering how he's gonna get up the next morning and keep going. Because the other thing about an emperor, which we forget at our peril, is there's no one you can talk to. If you're an emperor, you can't trust anybody. You can't sit down over a beer or a glass of wine and say, you know, guys, it's tough being an emperor. The show has to go on. The pressures of that public role are absolutely grinding. And that's what makes the meditation so incredibly touching. This guy is consoling himself. He's sitting there writing, as we do to our own diaries when we're depressed or discouraged, trying to give himself the courage to get through the next day. He gives little speeches. He, you know, cheers himself up, and then he falls back down. I mean, it's a wonderful document when, when read in that way. And I'm trying to humanize Marcus Aurelius and make us feel much closer to the human drama that he went through and that we can identify with.
0: Because as you say, it's the, that those parts are what stand out rather than this idea that it's a, a sort of an example of, of great stoicism and, and just back to Cicero, I suppose, in this idea of the consolation that comes with stoicism and, and one that I think you think is quite misguided and I would agree, you know, you say of Cicero that he, he was looking for the consolation that comes only from male peers if they remain dry-eyed, composed throughout all their trials. So the opposite of this vulnerability that you get from the meditations when you look to, to see this struggle, the struggles and the vulnerability, the opposite of that. And you talk about this stoicism that teaches men, and it is all men at this time, to refuse the comfort of tears. Mm. I feel like you're suggesting there that this... This that's not gone away, has it? There's still a legacy today, and not altogether a good one. That you know, that is consolation rather than being vulnerable, being exposed.
2: Yeah, I think, um, we are deeply, and we here as men are deeply influenced by the Cicero and Aurelius tradition of Stoicism. You don't cry, chin up, stiff upper lip. It's inculcated directly from that Roman tradition through through our fathers, through our schools, through many years, or it was. And I think it exacts, it, I'm ambivalent. I admire self-control at funerals. I admire people who carry it off without uh, breaking down. I see it in women as well as men. There's something very noble about Stoicism. So that's one side of it. But the other side of it is is it exacts a tremendous psychic price, the stiff upper lip. And I think that's one of the things that makes Cicero's breakdown so touching uh, is that he just can't carry it off. He wrote the stuff. He wrote the book on stoicism. And when it comes to it, he can't be stoic. It's just too hard. He's too broken apart by the death of this daughter. He feels absolutely distraught and describes it in letters to his friends. And his friends his friends say, come on, come on, stop it. But I'm, I'm on Cicero's side. Sometimes you just have to cry. There's nothing else you can do.
0: Yeah, I'm certainly on that side too. But um, you've, you've talked about the places where they've showed their vulnerability, where they find consolation. In fact, these two and many throughout the book is in the writing, is in writing down their feelings. I wonder sort of whether you relate to that, having written this, because you describe it as a deeply personal project. Were you in an extent, um, to an extent, seeking consolation through writing, as many of the subjects do?
2: Oh, I'm sure I I refer. It's not an autobiographical book. And I wouldn't want folks listening to think I'm kind of pouring my own soul and my own not so interesting life story onto the page. Um, but I think if you focus on consolation, you're obviously thinking through. In my case, the death of my parents um, a long time ago. That was a. They died in quick succession, and I loved my mom and dad deeply. And I took a long time to get over it. And I am now, I think, very much consoled uh, when I think of them, and um, and they come to me in dreams in a very kind of happy way, and. I feel fully consoled for the death of my parents, but I certainly wasn't consoled when they died in, you know, between 89 and 92. So it's it's personal in that sense. Um, I've also been in politics and got uh, thoroughly defeated, and I'm sure I had to work through uh, that failure. Uh, and uh, I have a chapter on Vaclav Havel, and I don't think that it's accidental that, you know, this is a great political figure, someone I admire. And he had to work through in prison uh, a very painful uh, sense of having failed to live up to his own ideals. So to that degree, there's a certain kind of connection uh, with with the people I'm writing about. Was the writing of it consoling? It was, I think it was terribly consoling. I, uh, it's a, it's a i hope it will be consoling to those who read it because in fact i hope it's a hopeful book i hope people feel this is a book that makes them feel that there are look at the shelves behind me that you know we're never alone these smart people behind behind me on these shelves are there and all we have to do is just reach back and and read and 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 then you have a sense of company you have a sense of what I call solidarity in time, a sense that we are linked in time to an enormously long tradition of consolation, both religious and secular, that really can help us when, we, when we're sad and lonesome and, and desperate. And so I hope that message of hope will be, you know, helpful to the folks who, who read this book.
0: Before we come back to some of those specific examples, but when you talk about those um, personal uh, examples that you just mentioned, it, it reminds me of something that you write in the book, which is that time is perhaps one of the most essential ingredients in it, of, of the consolation or the process of being consoled. And at one stage, you know, you've mentioned it takes a, it takes a while consolation is perhaps something that is harder to imagine as something immediate. And you write "It maybe the work of a lifetime.
2: Yes, yes. I say that that it is the work of a lifetime because grief is such a mysterious business. I've sat in a concert hall years after, years, decades after something that caused me grief and uh, music will start playing and, and something in the music will trigger tears and i i can't understand where where it's coming from i feel a little embarrassed i'm sitting between people and i'm trying to make sure that they don't see that i'm crying and i i can't even be sure what i'm crying for and then only later i begin to realize i'm i'm still grieving for something that happened 25 years ago i i think this is a common experience and and that's why i say consolation is the work of a lifetime um, you know our unconscious is very mysterious our our the subterranean stuff the stuff below our awareness is is runs very deep and is very important and when we write we try to bring some of this up to the surface and and get a hold of it and it sort of slips through our fingers but um, and all of that's wonderful I don't I don't I'm grateful, in fact, deeply grateful that we're not fully rational creatures and that it's our responsibility to work everything out. Our psyches are at work. Our bodies are at work, you know, healing us in ways that we don't we don't understand. And that's that's a great thing.
1: Families have a lot going on.
0: Yes, you write that line about uh, a work of a lifetime in your chapter, I think, about the relationship between consolation and music and about Gustav Mahler. And I wondered, do you think, therefore, in in, in writing that and in writing about and and investigating his life and looking to now, that music can be a genuine consoler?
2: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that precisely because music is wordless, it has this incredible capacity to stimulate uh, feeling, and I don't think we understand it very well. I in in the Mahler chapter, I, I look at music that is paired with words, so it's a little easier to understand how the music is working because it's the music is there to point and accentuate the words that Mahler wrote for his incredible s- series called Songs on the Death of Children, which he wrote. Essentially, to console himself and to console for others for the fact that he'd lost his brothers when he was a young man, and he was to lose his daughter. But there, you see the music doing extraordinary work. A wise man said that there's a final passages of the final song in Leader. feels like the touch of your mother's hand on your head, which is a wonderful image of. Of comfort. And I think sometimes when we listen to beautiful music, we have this feeling that you know, our mum or our dad is putting their hands on our head.
0: Mm. Uh, music is, of course, n- not a <laughs> necessarily a, ma- a material thing, but there's a, a contradiction when it comes to the various um, chapters in the book and the various thoughts that people have about where to find consolation. And you talk about certain people who who would have it in smaller pleasures, earthly pleasures, sort of things that are accessible and graspable, graspable, if that's even a word, rather than searching to to bigger things for for meaning like faith and spirituality. And I'm thinking here of your chapter, The Body's Wisdom, when you talk about Michel de Montaigne and also David Hume.
2: Yeah, I think that we're the heirs of, Two traditions were the heirs of a secular, uh, a religious tradition of consolation, uh, which comes out of the Psalms, which comes out of the Christian tradition, and the and the and the great Hebrew and Jewish traditions. But we're also, I think, heirs of a kind of revolt against consolation, and uh, you see this revolt in in Montaigne in the 1580s. This is a man living through a civil war. It's a man. He's a man living through the plague. He's a man getting older, and I focus only on the last three incredible essays that he wrote in the late 1580s, in the middle of civil war, in the middle of the plague. And one of the things that you know Montaigne begins to say is, you know, he's got one of the great libraries in Europe in his tower in near Bordeaux, where he works. But he increasingly says, you know, I don't I don't read the books anymore. If I if I think about what makes me love life, it's the common routines of life Mm. and he gets right down into the detail about he loves the way his bed is made he likes certain kinds of food he likes to drink wine at a certain hour not others Uh, he noticed that when he gets on a horse if the stirrup isn't tied he gets very upset but where if it's tightly tied there's nothing he likes more than a good ride through the country it's deeply sympathetic stuff he's saying you know He's essentially saying, what is consoling about life is life itself. Don't overthink this. Surrender yourself to the, the, the pleasures, the, the, the ordinary magic of life. And David Hume says, two centuries later, very much the same. Hume, who's an incredible figure, in his late 20s wrote the most dramatic uh, contribution to English philosophy, kind of ever in a way, um, a treatise on human nature. And he drove himself to the edge of madness, really trying to write this book, and, but noticed a very significant thing, which is when he knocked it off, when he pushed the papers to the side, when he went out for a drink with his friends, when he sat and played cards with them for three or four hours, his sense of love for what he was doing returned, his sense of inner orientation and happiness returned. He thought some of his metaphysical puzzles about the meaning of life just vanished. And so he, he took a very important lesson, which has been influential ever since, which is that consolation is to be found in sociability playing that round of cards with your buddies, having a meal, saying, I don't want to talk about it and just being with people, you know. And so Montaigne and, and Hume are the great poets of this kind of, of ordinary life and and the consolations that life itself can provide if you just put away your problems and let yourself go into the stream of life.
0: So, I mean, what, therefore, you take from from that, from Hume, is this idea, he's as he says, that the ultimate consolation is from the social world, and you you pick that very important theme up again near the end when you talk about the very, very relevant and now not existing on any bookshelves, because in the last year it's been snapped up the plague, of course, and and what that ultimately teaches us about our reliance on and need for each other, you say no consolation really other than that exists.
2: Yes, I mean, apart from the consolation of reading the plague itself. I mean, I'm, my book straddles a certain kind of ambivalence about this. I, I, my book is a book of essays about 18 wonderful books or and a couple of songs and a painting. And it says it matters terribly for us to care about these books and read them. But it also says one of the really wise things these books say is that you can't put all your faith in books and you can't put all your faith in words. One of the the reasons that I'm so interested in consolation is this is the place where words so commonly fail us. I think everybody listening to this program has tried to console somebody when they've lost a loved one. And it's one of the most awful and difficult things. Also the thing we must do, it's a real duty of life. And yet words fail us. We often just sit with people because we don't know what to do. And the great Jewish tradition of sitting Shiva, I'm not Jewish, but I love this ritual because you just come to the house and you sit. (laughs) You don't have to say anything. You just sit to show respect to the dead, to show respect to the family. And it's one of the most consoling and psychologically brilliant rituals of comfort that I know. And so I'm saying the book is a kind of paradox. The book is saying books matter, words matter. But beware, when it comes to consolation, words will fail you. And Camus, to get to Camus, I think this is one of the deepest meanings in the book that hasn't really been seen enough. The Plague is a novel which tries to describe an absurd situation in which a plague suddenly surges through a city and carries people off. The plague is completely meaningless. The doctors are helpless to do anything about it. The thing that turns it around is just brute human solidarity, people sticking together, helping the dying, caring for the dying. It's an absurd world. There's no meaning to this suffering. It's awful, but people get through it by by sticking together. And there's a figure at the end, somewhere in the book, which I don't think has been noticed enough, this wonderful old woman um, who has almost no words in the book, who just sits beside a dying man all night, you know, stroking his hair, so he doesn't die alone. And if you think about what consolation is, that is what it is to console someone to sit with someone so they don't die alone. Well, Camus understand something terribly profound about this. No words need to be exchanged, but you need to do that, so that dying isn't as terrifying. It's a terrible thing about life is to be alone, and... Camus senses that in, in the book, which is why I think the plague is such a fantastic piece of literature.
0: Dying is, of course, you know, central to this in the sense that it's probably the hardest thing to reconcile ourselves to. It's the hardest place to find consolation. And you do talk about that. It comes up, of course, in all the different essays, and particularly your writing of a good death. Do, do you think that in your... Discovery and your exploration, you, you found a way to find consolation even when faced with death?
2: Well, I, it, it's um, my interest in the good death began, I think, because my parents, who I love deeply, had bad deaths. They, they were both hospital deaths. In the case of my father, he died very suddenly of a heart attack, and I couldn't get there. And so he died alone. My brother did his best to get there, but he had to leave him, so he died alone, which gives me the horrors, really. I I still feel sorry about that. And my mother died after Alzheimer's disease and kind of died in a hospital, and it just, it was a mess somehow. So that's given me a pretty acute personal interest in how you can have a better death. And uh, one of the people who has thought most about that, and I I met her and felt terribly lucky to have met her was Cicely Saunders, whom some of you listening to the program may know she created the hospice movement and was a, she was a nurse and she was a doctor and she um, basically invented, you know, modern pain management and the modern rituals of um, uh, hospice care so that and, and what she understood, I think, which is central to her whole practice, was that when, when people are dying, they are troubled not just by the pain and the fear of dying itself. They're also tremendously troubled often about their relations with their loved ones, with their family, with their, with their social circle. And part of what hospice care does is create a space and time so that... Um, the dying can be reconciled with their loved ones and make peace. And, and another thing that I think Cicely Saunders saw, which is the most radical idea, and, and I think the idea in the whole book that has had the most effect on me, was that she seemed to see that dying is not something that we do alone. We do this with others. And even as we die, she says, we can help to take the fear of death away from others. And so we, we can die literally for others and do something by the way in which we meet our own death that takes the fear of it from those we love. And that's an incredibly positive view of dying. It gives it a purpose and a meaning that I, I don't think I, until I spent time with Cicely Saunders and kind of thought about her thought, it wasn't a thought it, it really occurred to me. I thought you went into this tunnel alone and that was it. No, you you can die for others, to take away the fear of it. I don't know whether, you know, look, it's a it's a difficult thing. I don't I have no idea whether I'll be capable of it or conscious or able to do it at all when my time comes. But I sure would like it. If you had to ask me what I would like to do to console my own children and my wife, people I love, for the prospect of my own death, it would be to die in such a way that they'd think as they come away from the experience, death is not as fearful as I thought. If I could achieve that for the end of my life, that would be a really wonderful thing to do. I don't know whether I'll be able to do it, but Cicely Saunders helped me to see that.
0: There were a a lot of people you could draw on. There's a lot of of texts. I wonder how you made your decision to select these. Um, How many have you got all together? I'm not I can't quite. Um, yeah. How did you select your, your 17 or your year 16?
2: Oh, look, uh, Hannah, I, I, I don't want the audience to think this is the history of consolation. You know, it's, a, uh-uh. <laughs> it's not complete. It's very personal. It's very, in a way, arbitrary. By arbitrary, let me give you an example. Let me level with you. Uh, my wife and I went on a holiday to Toledo in Spain, and came around a corner and went into a church, and there was El Greco's death of Count Orgaz. I had no, I didn't know anything about this picture. I knew something about El Greco, but I didn't know anything about this picture. I was so stunned by this picture um, that I decided to write an essay about it that ends up in the book. I mean, that is how the book got written. I make no apologies for it. I kind of followed my nose, and I try to connect the El Greco chapter to previous and subsequent ones. I've arranged the chapters in historical order, so you get a sense of historical change and development. But this is a very personal choice, and there's some significant omissions that uh, all I can hope is that uh, when people read it, they'll think, why did you put that one in? And and then that, I hope that will incentivize the discontented reader to go out and reread the book or the text or the film or the thing that they love. I'm very short on on lots of things. Uh, there are lots of films that have a deep consoling power. There's some wonderful 20th century uh, popular music that is just fantastic. But I, I I just put between the covers what I thought was central to me, and I hope that will suggest to others other routes to consolation that they find more relevant to their own lives.
0: You mentioned that painting, and I'm glad that you did, because it's in that chapter that you talk about time, as we've mentioned, but we mentioned it slightly differently. You, You write, we wish time should not slip so irrevocably into forgetting, that the present should not be so fleeting, that the future should not be so unsettled and so unknown. But but of course i mean of course that is probably the thing that uh, worries and is a source of anxiety for everybody the fleetingness of 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 our existence and the insecurity and the anxiety that that uncertainty brings i mean where does consolation fit into that how do we find how do we how are we consoled faced with that mm-hmm. reality
2: well that part of the book that you're quoting from occurs, as you say, in the El Greco chapter. And the thing that's wonderful about El Greco and consoling in a way is that it's the death of Orgaz, which I won't describe in detail, is an absolute tour de force in which he puts together a early Christian saint, a medieval man being buried, and the people of 16th century Toledo and heaven, all in one plane of a picture. So time, past, present, and future, are put on one plane in a picture so that you have this hallucinating sense that time has stopped, that all time can be comprised in, 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 in one eternal moment. And there's something very poignant about that, very moving to me about that, because it expresses, as I say, this melancholy we all have that uh, which i think is the essential subject for which we seek consolation which is that happiness is so fleeting time flows inexorably away from us Uh, the past flows inexorably away the future is always uncertain this is the human experience of time and we need to be consoled for it and el greco's painting is one of the great attempts to console The believers of 16th century Toledo, with a vision that if you believed in the Catholic religion, time would stop. You would be united to the saints of the deep past. You would be connected to the more recent past. And you would be united with a vision of going to heaven in the future. And El Greco depicts it all. He depicts heaven. He shows you Mary waiting to greet you, he shows the little souls coming up. Um, uh, going up to heaven in the most literal, but absolutely charming and convincing way. It's a tour de force of, of consolation. Mm-hmm. And you can admire it, even if, as I say, you, you don't think this is a consolation that you can avail yourself of, because you can't believe in this vision of time. But um, it, it, it focused me on how central time is as an issue for which we seek consolation.
0: And just before I come and um, thank you to the audience who are submitting their questions, just a, a, a few other examples from the book, you know, talking about consolation. There is one essay in there, Consolation, which is, of course, the Consolations of Philosophy, the chapter with Bethius, um, I hope I've pronounced him, his name right, and Dante, who features at the end. But it was it's a fascinating essay. And you, you talk about his struggle as faithful to the drama of any internal struggle also the bleak comedy. And I wonder if you could relay that, that uh, internal struggle that he is going through with Philosophia, because it's it's so deeply relatable.
2: Well, it, it, Boethius is a, is a late Roman sem- senator in kind of the 520 ADs at the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the so-called barbarian dark ages. Boethius works for a barbarian king called Theoderic, he runs foul of Theoderic. Theoderic throws him in prison, condemns him to death. And Boethius is one of the most learned men of his time, is alone in prison, trying to think about how I'm going to get through while I wait, being ex- wait to be executed, which is a horrendous experience. And what he does is absolutely astounding. He invents himself a companion. He uh, creates this literary figure, Lady Philosophy. He even describes her gown. It's all kind of slightly ragged, and she has books in her hand, and she's very witty and funny, and she keeps him company. And the Constellation of Philosophy is a wonderful dialogue between a man awaiting execution and this crazy lady who keeps saying to him, Come on, calm down, get a grip, you know, smarten up. And what's fascinating is this is a projection of one part of himself. He's talking to himself. He's alone in the cell, but he projects onto Lady Philosophy a part of himself who is trying to subdue the other part of him, which is just, excuse my language, shit scared. So, you know, uh, there's something comic in Boethius uh, as a result, and it's a it's a magnificent invention that's inspired people ever since Queen Elizabeth I wrote a translation of Boethius's Consolation because she thought it was such a wonderful book, and Dante, the great, you know, creator of the Italian language, was inspired by Boethius to create a companion as he visits the nether regions and hell. So this invention of a a partner uh, follows through into the Middle Ages. And then the thing that moves me most is that when the great Italian writer Primo Levi was in Auschwitz in 1944, he is walking to a soup kitchen to get his dinner with a fellow inmate. And suddenly... He remembers lines from dante you were not born to be brutes you were born to reason and knowledge and he looks around in auschwitz and he it's as if he's heard you know the voice of god telling him you're not born to be brutes you're not born for this it's as if he imagines that there's a world beyond auschwitz there's a future beyond auschwitz it's one of the most moving moments to me in literature and it and it has this deep connection back to Dante, and from Dante back to Boethius. This is one of the things I'm trying to say in the book, that these traditions of consolation are a thousand years long, and they, they keep surfacing again in moments of extremity and desperation um, to inspire and console people facing imprisonment and, and the prospect of death and extermination.
0: You write about the Primo Levi's experiences in the chapter that you call The Consolations of Witness. Uh, And that's the idea that through witnessing these three particularly horrific and and tragic moments in history and writing it down, there's the consolation for those who did that, that their experiences will be read, will be uh, understood by future generations and also the consolation, I suppose, again, that we get from their suffering and the the experiences that, that last through time.
2: Yes, and one of the things I'm trying to say about readers like us who come after someone like Primo Levi or after the great Russian poet Anna Akhmatova who records the tyranny of Stalin, one of the things we have to understand is that we are their consolation yeah, uh, they wrote and remembered, and were consoled by the thought that someone will read my work. I may not survive, but someone will read my work. That is, the future will remember me. And and they were consoled. I think Anna Akhmatova was consoled by the sense that she was witness to these crimes of Stalin and had written down in many poems, but particularly Requiem, that she believed would survive. And so <laughs> we, have to, we have to understand our responsibility backwards. Um, Primo Levi felt the whole point of his writing about Auschwitz was so that this would never be forgotten and that subsequent generations, i.e. us, would remember what he said happened there. And so this sense that we are their consolation is a very important way of thinking about what it is to read them. And one of the things that's a little bleak when you face Holocaust denial and and the resurgence of a certain kind of racist, anti-Semitic stuff is you begin to wonder whether Primo Levi's, lessons have been, <laughs> have found an audience. I certainly hope, I'm ultimately optimistic that these witnesses, Akmadava and Primo Levi, will, <laughs> will be read for centuries hence as proof that these things happen, as demonstration they must never happen again. But it is up to us. It's up to whether we provide them the consolation that they hoped that we would provide.
0: Yeah, you say interestingly there that you're ultimately optimistic, but you've taught you talked about sort of uh, essentially, I suppose, um, you know, denial, racism, a lot of the things that come up when you're reflecting on consolation in the book. That I would say leads the re- reader to believe that you know when you look around the world today, there's a lot in it that makes you feel despondent and a bit despairing, and that is a hard place to find to be, you know, to find consolation.
2: Well, no question. I I, I didn't write this book to cheer the world up, and I didn't write this world anticipating just how dark uh, the world seems to be in January 2022 with impending environmental catastrophe, with um, the rise of certain kinds of aggressive expansionist authoritarianism, which may return us to war in Europe. God help us. I hope we don't global pandemics it's not a happy it's not a happy picture one of the things the book says however which is you know perfectly obvious is that we have been in this place before i mean you know you look at a guy like montaigne montaigne faces a plague and a civil war simultaneously in the 1580s And we forget that there's no cure for the plague in 1580. There's nothing medicine can do. You just die. Um, The Civil War that he was writing about didn't last for just a year or two. It lasted for his entire adult life. And we need to remember that, that people wrote transcendent works of literature and thought great thoughts and kept social life together in unimaginably difficult circumstances before and if they can do it, we can do it. I mean, I guess that's I hope uh, a, a hopeful message. Mm. I also think, frankly, that we often exaggerate our context because we have no kind we're right up against it. We we don't have any capacity to see it in in its proper uh, context. And I think someone, it'll only be much later, 50, 60 years, they'll look back at this and they may say things that surprise us, which are Boy, they got through that very quickly. They got those vaccines very quickly. Uh, at the time, they were absolutely furious at their governments for being so useless. And uh, But actually, the governments were, uh, you know, when we studied it, much more effective than the public thought at the time. I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying we're too close to the glass. And uh, I think that's one of the messages of the book as well. We're too close to the glass.
0: Well, that might impact your answer to um, one of the audience questions, which is quite specific to perhaps uh, this country. Um, but somebody asks, and there are obviously, you know, examples in the book all the way through of, of of politics and politicians and leaders. So somebody asks how a politician like Boris Johnson finds consolation in a crisis or in their own failures.
2: Um, boy, that's a set of shoes that I find almost impossible to put my my feet <laughs> into. You know, um, he's such a weird guy to me. Um, <laughs> um, I no, I don't. I think there's very little consolation for a, for a Boris Johnson. This is a man, as far as I understand his psychology, who very much wants to be liked, and at the moment he's very widely distrusted and disliked, and possibly for a very good reason. I'm not in. Britain, and I'm not a citizen, it's your problem, not mine. But looking at it from the outside, I think it's a terrible place for Boris Johnson to be. And all he can do is fight. And so the idea that this guy is going to fold his cards uh, doesn't strike me as psychologically right. He's got nowhere else to go. He has to hang on and, you know, blag his way out of this, because the alternative for him it doesn't bear thinking about. And so don't count him out would be my sense of where he is, but it's a desperate place, no question.
0: Um, I think this is a message rather than a question we'll move on. But um, Paquita says, um, listening to this, I'm deeply moved and uplifted. So much of what you say resonates with my own thoughts, feelings and lived experience. I very much look forward to reading the book and I'm certain I shan't be dis- shall not be disappointed. It will give consolation to many, thank you. Um, and I people,
2: Whoever you are, I, you know, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Another question. Hi, Michael. How much our social background can influence the way we seek consolation? How much can our social background influence the way we seek consolation either from others or by ourselves? I'm Italian. My mum is the typical example of someone who finds deep consolation in God and other Catholic figures. But despite growing up in that environment, I'm not like that myself.
2: Oh, I think social background is hugely important. And it may be that some people will read my book and think, you know, this isn't my cast of characters, I would go elsewhere for consolation. Uh, and, And in fact, I hope the book will encourage people to do their own inventory of the things that console and comfort them in difficult times. No, I think there's no, the book is not saying there is a universal standard of the books you must read and the art you must look at and the music you must hear in order to be properly consoled. That would be nuts. You know, if your origins are Italian, there may be absolutely specific aspects of Italian culture that, you know, move you, grip you, grab you. It may not be your mother's faith, but it might be something else. I think uh, the things that comfort and console us are all culturally coded by our upbringings, by our family, by our, you know, the, The stuff I put in between these covers is is the stuff that my mom and dad taught me, the uh, things I learned in the course of a life. But I think it's extremely important for anybody who actually enjoys the book not to think, oh, well, this is what consolation is. No, but to go out and search for the things that are meaningful for you. And, And just so it's clear, you know, I left out a tremendous number of things that console me. I happen to be, for reasons I go, go into, a great lover of Ella Fitzgerald, gospel music, and the blues. Well, that is an absolutely enormous source of consolation to millions of people. And I didn't put in the book. So I encourage you to, you know, ransack your own memories and lives and 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 find the things that work for you.
0: I was just um scrolling through the book to to um, look at a quote of yours that's relevant to this next question. Um, I I can't quite find it, but there's a part in the book where you say something. I think it's um, when you're talking about Paul and I think it's to do with how consolation comes in being able to sit with someone and say, I know, I know, I know, and to understand. Um, And Joanne says, is consolation about truly being present with someone, being really present in that moment giving someone the space where they can be their entire self with no barriers or judgments. And therefore it is essential that humans develop the ability to communicate with each other in open, honest, and heartfelt ways so we can console each other. So that's the first part. And the second part is that she says, but can we console ourselves? More challenging in my experience.
2: The first part, I I think you're absolutely right. Consolation is a, a very social relationship. It means conveying the sense of, I know, I've been there. I know what you're feeling. It mostly means listening, by the way. Um, A lot of speeches don't go so well when someone's really desperate. What they want to feel is that you're with them. I make an important contrast in the book between comfort, which I think is physical, nonverbal, just put your arm around someone, hold someone tight and consolation which is much more difficult because it involves providing some kind of meaning that allows someone to have the hope to go on and that's very very difficult uh, i think one of the things about life that we really and and this book brought home to me is there's some things for which we are just inconsolable no meaning is possible and i think i've you know i've i've sat with someone who lost his wife of 50 years. What do you say to someone who's 90 and has been married to someone for 50 years and she's just died? I mean, he's inconsolable for excellent reasons. He loved her. He doesn't know how he can live his life without her. I mean, and this can only be respected. And so consoling someone is respecting what's inconsolable in a way. And comfort is just, you know, making sure they're fed and you know, go for a walk and give him a hug and whatever you can do. But consolation is is one of the most difficult things we do, precisely because you're trying to give meaning for experiences for which no meaning may be possible, and that's that's terribly difficult. To the other part of your question, consoling yourself is part of why you know I described in detail why what Boethius does to console himself, he invents a companion. And in some ways we do it ourselves. You know, when we're very, very low, we create a kind of inner voice that we we talk to and dialogue with to try and get a grip, some kind of perspective on the blows that have rained in upon us. But often I think we can console ourselves alone. I've had one period in my life when I actually needed therapy. And that's part of the, you know, it just it was too much for me. And I think we need to be humble enough and honest enough to understand there are some experiences that are just too much for us. We cannot console ourselves alone. We need someone else. And sometimes we need a professional because it's just too much of a mess for to impose on someone else.
0: Carmen writes that they want to be strong for their husband who is ill, um, very ill, and two sons who are nine and 19. And whether you had any wise words of consolation, she says, from a wise man. <laughs> Thank you. Oh,
2: God. Oh Carmen, I wish I I, I wish I could be uh, helpful. That sounds like a terribly uh, tough tough experience. I think a lot about the kids there. I, I think it's very important to take the children along with this. I, I think it, uh, from what I've read, there are moments when when children feel that in in struggling to deal with serious illness, adults then kind of Close the children off. I think it's terribly important to carry them along, talk to them. It's frightening. It's terribly painful to talk to children because it's so frightening to think that their dad is sick. I mean, it's just you know. But you've got to, you've got to go through that with them and just level with them so that they know where they are. So if the worst happens, they 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 have begun to do their own work here, and um, it's just. It's very difficult also when people are sick and when you yourself are frightened and alarmed to show love to other people. Uh, But I think it's one of the moments when it's so important to turn the love light on because the kids need it. The strong man in hospital needs it desperately. you just got to make the love flow as strongly as you can, even though you yourself are are frightened and worried and anxious. This is tremendously demanding. I, I you know, and you have my, I, I, you know, I wish I could help.
0: Just to finish off, we've said there are so many you've included, so many you haven't, but you started this kind of great endeavor that you, huge amount of reading, of traveling, of exploring. I wonder what, you you came out being most I suppose moved or changed by when you look back over all that research that you had to do. You obviously went with a with an idea of consolation, and I just wonder where the biggest thought you know change in your thought process or in your idea of what of consolation, where to find it came.
2: Well, I think I rediscovered just how important consolation is. I mean, th- this is one of the most difficult things we ever have to do, and one of the most important and when we do it well when we feel we have consoled someone who's suffering loss or grief or failure we feel we've been a proper human being and and so i want to restore the the business of being a consoling person to the center of how we think it it is to be a good human being that's what we, you know kind of one thing i think the the other thing is that i've i've drawn a tremendous amount of Uh, consolation, strength, hope from this weird feeling of solidarity in time, a a deep connection to uh, an unbroken chain of wisdom that goes back to the absolute beginning of our tradition, uh, back to the Psalms and forward into the 21st century, a continuous tradition uh, that we can use to console ourselves. We are not alone. We're not floating in space. We, we can connect to that, draw from it, and draw strength from it. And the final thought is, I mentioned this with relation to Cicely Saunders, even in the thing where we most need consolation, which is death itself, it is possible to conceive, to imagine going to our final hours, with one more bit of work to do, which is take the fear of death away from those watching us die. That's the most astounding thought for me that I took from from doing this book, and the one that I'm thinking about most. I'm in Hail, hearty, good health, and hope I'll be here for a long time. Um, But when my time comes, I want to remember that thought.
0: Well, um, as you say, we hope you'll be with us a long time, not least because I feel like there's a volume two um, with all the music that you've just mentioned that also is a place where you find consolation. Um, But for now, I've really just realised I think it's the publication today. So um, happy publication with that. Thank you for this wonderful book, for this lovely conversation. And thank you so much to all of you who've signed in. Uh, Really wonderful um, to see so many of you doing so, as I say, thank you.
2: Thank you, Hannah, and, and thank everybody who, who tuned in tonight. I, I love talking to you.
1: This episode of the podcast starred Michael Ignatieff and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The editor is John Doughty, and the series is produced by me and Dana Outcult. On Consolation is out now, wherever good books are sold. If you enjoyed this episode, why not rate us and review us on your podcasting platform of choice? Until next time. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.